Welcome to another episode of Well, This Isn't Normal, the podcast about dealing with this, all of this, stress, anxiety, various other things. My name is Sarah Benincasa, and I am super busy today. This is coming out on Friday, May 1st. Happy May Day, I guess. Is it May Day? I don't know. Beltane? I don't know how to say that. Anyway, I think as a witch, uh, you're supposed to dance around some sort of a pole, metaphorically. Anyway, <laughs> today, right now on Instagram, I'm at Sarah J. Benincasa and my co-host for Socially Distant Comic-Con, Cecil Castellucci, is at Cecil Seaskull, C-E-C-I-L-S-E-A-S-K-U-L-L. We are interviewing people all day, awesome actors and comics creators and people who've been on this podcast, um, John Ross Bowie, Chuck Wendig bunch of other people I can't remember. It's going to be really fun. And uh, we did it because we were sad that we weren't going to be at San Diego Comic-Con this year since it's been canceled. I've written a couple of stories for Marvel, just one-offs in the past, and something for Dan Harmon's company, Starburns. Um, so I've done some comics writing, and I've been at New York Comic-Con a lot on panels and things like that. And um, have been a volunteer and supporter of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, in the past as well. So uh, we are raising awareness for CBLDF as well as BINK. And both of them are really great organizations that help comics creators and comics readers and booksellers in need. And they're especially vital right now. So go to my Instagram at Sarah J. Ben and Casa. You'll also see info for Cecil's Instagram there as well. And we'll be doing 10 minute interviews with all kinds of cool people all frickin' day long on Friday. And we'll archive it as well, I think. <laughs> so anyway, you can check it out. Today, my guest is Tommy Sadowski. He is a friend of mine. He is an incredibly special person. He's been a wonderful influence on me personally. And uh, we met through our friend Tamar Levine, who's a great photographer. And Thomas, Tomas, is, um, he's just awesome. He's on Tommy, which is not a show named after him. It's not a wacky sitcom where he plays a dad who gets it wrong sometimes, but then gets it right when it matters. It's a show starring Edie Falco, who is one of my number one crushes. And Edie Falco plays Tommy, who's the tough-talking New Yorker who gets hired to be the first lady chief of police of the LAPD. And Thomas, Tommy, Tommy Sadowski, plays the mayor of LA, who's kind of a scumbag, but charming, but can you trust him? But I don't know. He also was Don on the newsroom, and he's done a shitload of theater. Just a really great dude. And yeah, he's awesome. So enjoy my interview with Thomas Sadowski. When you're done, I have a few more words for you, and then you should go to Instagram.com slash Sarah J. Benincasa and watch Socially Distant Comic Con. Okay, here we go. Everybody, I am here with my friend Tommy Sadowski. Hi, friend. Hi, friend. How are you doing, uh, backwards baseball cat McGee? Is that what's happening? 
thing? Is that a do rag? What's going on? No, it's a backwards. That's back- <laughs> I'm not a full. I'm not a full, oh. full kind of guy. You but. have the uh, the it's a Dom Punks thing, and I have. I'm gonna put this hat on. I just got a little Dom's baseball cap. You got a little Dom's baseball. I love little Dom's. I love them so much. Which one of us would you say versus like okay, a Dharma Punks cap uh, versus a little Dom cap? Who's the most punk rock edgy motherfucker on this Zoom call right now? Oh, I think that's definitely you. If you're wearing, particularly the thing that the people can't see is that your little Dom's cap has flair. It does. Yeah, it's a captain's hat, and I'm. I love it so much. And for everybody who's listening, um, Little Dom's is a wonderful restaurant in uh, Los Angeles, California, where I dwell all of the time, and Tommy dwells some of the time, um, uh, when when necessary, when one is posted out here. And um, and it's great because I know a lot of people listening uh, work in the service industry, have been laid off, have been furloughed, or are like. I've gotten some emails from people who are like bartenders who now suddenly are grocery stocking for people and delivery people because of the way businesses have pivoted. So, you know, the restaurant's great. Oh, normally it's a booming, very successful restaurant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I bought a fucking hat when I ordered groceries from them the other day because they had the eggs I wanted and they had the good pasta flour. And I was like, I'm going to buy a fucking hat too. That's right. And they do the, the little uh, sandwich place that they have. The attachment does like a really quality muffaletta sandwich, <gasps> uh, which is wicked hard to find in, in, uh, in the great state of California. So it is, um, yeah, Little Dom's is a mecca, man. What are the favorite... Hmm. Okay, wait. No, I want to ask this in a way so it's not like, where can I find you having coffee, Thomas Tadowski? <laughs> so let me reframe what I was going to be like. What are the restaurants that you love? But um, what are you know? What are some ways in which you've been at uh, you being a very uh, I would say you and 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 your lovely uh, partner Amanda, your uh, sacred uh, gentleman caller who's a lady. What? It's early. <laughs> Double espresso. Um, <laughs> Somewhere there will be a fan site that's just, there has to be a fan site that's just Amanda in like tuxedos and a lesbian created it. And I'm going to Google it after this. It's fine. I'm a fun friend. It's always good to have predatory friends who are like, yo, bro, your wife's fucking hot, bro. And she needs to wear more tuxedos. <laughs> Can your wife wear more tuxedos and, uh, Marry me, marry me instead. It's cool. It's cool, right, bro? Yeah, it's what every man loves in a predatory queer friend. <laughs> I don't even know what question I'm asking now. It really devolved. <laughs> so quickly, so rapidly. We went from like throwing love to little doms and attempting to get like the employees some some love and some financial backing to like predatory queer friends dressing up your your spouse in 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 formal attire. And that, <laughs> by the way that happened like in a moment like there was just it took no time at all we just we made like a hard left like that was a hard left there was no chance <laughs> uh, in context for the listeners that i've never even met amanda this would be like way cooler it was like yeah my buddy <laughs> What a piece of shit. Well, that's what you get when you get Benicasa. You get a loving friend, very supportive, very affirming, will steal your woman if she can. 
and dress her up like a doll. <laughs> um, like, I am a I, I am Bill Moyers. You're, it is. It's no, no, hun. That's season three of Mind Hunter. <laughs> and I was like, "Yo, <laughs> fucked up working on Mind Hunters." Like that's the level of interview. I'm getting these amazing guests, like yourself, a thespian, uh, <laughs> an activist. Uh, you know, I get these amazing guests who are friends, or friends of friends, or friends of friends of friends, or just people on Twitter. Where I'm like, "Yo, you seem cool. You want to talk to me on Zoom?" And people, are, people are so fucking bored that they're like, "Yes." I, my master plan to interview Sam Neill uh, hasn't happened yet, but I've really been actively plotting. Sure. I mean, there are many friends who've worked with them, and <laughs> I'm like, yo, can you ask me to do my podcast? And like two of them just didn't respond. Yeah. And these are people who actively respond to me <laughs> every day. <laughs> and I'm just like, but they fucking know the level of thirst is so intense. They're like, no, you're not going to embarrass the shit out of me by That's interviewing a- Sam Neill and saying gross shit like <laughs> <laughs> you just did to Tommy. <laughs> It's good times. Yeah, you can't put a Sicilian Scorpio in ISO for too long. And like, no, not God. I, mean, I sort of feel like that's happening to everybody. Like, we're all like the very, the very thin fabric. What my favorite book, my my favorite piece of modern fiction is this extraordinary book um, called Lord of the Barnyard. Um, that's a great title. Yeah, yeah. I think that the subtitle is Lord of the Barnyard, and the subtitle is. Uh, um, what is it? Killing the fatted calf and arming the aware in the corn belt. Oh my God. If, if you're correct and you just recalled that subtitle like that. Yeah. No, I'm right. Lord of the Barnyard. Killing I can't the remember. I wrote a book called Real Artists Have Day Jobs and Other Things They Don't Teach You or Tell You in School. I can't remember the fucking <laughs> subtitle to my own fucking most recent book. Uh, All right, actor. Uh, All right, person uh, who remembers things. But no, but this is incredible. It's this is an incredible piece of fiction, and um, the the sort of gist of it is like how how close we actually are, um, how we we really are just existing on a razor's edge in terms of what we can what we view as being a civilized society. Like that, at any given moment, if you remove, in the case of Lord of the Barnyard, if you remove the garbage collectors, uh, if they go on like a hardcore strike. Um, the fabric of civilized society unravels rapidly. And I think that on some level, you're actually kind of seeing that play out in terms of this quarantine, like what we consider in terms of sanity, uh, what we consider in terms of, um, you know, being civilized individuals is is sort of spinning so rapidly off its axis that it, I mean, you're, you're talking about people who haven't like, it's gone from, I wake up every morning, I take a shower, I go to work, to I wake up every morning, I take a shower once every three days. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, maybe, like, I haven't seen people. It's, it's incredible, like, the sort of stuff that we are willing to just instantly cast aside. And for, like, not just days, but, like, weeks, months at a time. Um, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. It is the best time in the world to interview people. And I've oh, spoken sure. to other writers who've done this too and yeah. um, other, you know, podcasters and uh, 
it is the absolute best time in the world to interview people. I was talking to Alex Berg, who's going to be on the podcast. She hosts a BuzzFeed News show called AM to DM. And oh, they yeah. do like a bunch of, they interview on a regular day. They interview a bunch of people, I think, every day. And then they cut it up and release it in small bits on Twitter. And yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah, and, I did that show. They're, they're really, they're fantastic. Yeah, yeah, they're just, they're, they know how to pivot really quickly. So they were really ideal taking AM to DM from having their studio in New York to working out of the home was, I think, a bit of a pain in the ass, but not the same way it would be for um, sort of a heritage brand, old school TV show to do it, which is very unfamiliar, understandably, to a lot of folks. Uh, But for them, they pivoted pretty well. And so Alex was saying to me that, um, you know, she's a, she's a, First of all, she's, um, I believe, married to a lady uh, who is a nurse. And mm-hmm. Alex is also does roller derby in New York, which is hardcore. So is hardcore. she's a journalist at, and has a sweet voice. And then you're like, oh, you elbow people. Okay. Um, but hard. Uh, yeah. Hard. I, I have friends who are in the roller derby scene in New York. I'm, one of my dear, dear friends is um, uh, Margaret Thrasher. Oh my God, that's so yeah. great! Yeah, and I, I, uh, I, I'm, I've seen them in action, and it is, it's pretty extraordinary. So yeah, th- these are hardcore people. Hardcore, and it's amazing because you're like, wow, this gal is so lovely and sweet, and she is a murder person, and I love that. But she was saying that she's used to people coming in with their glam squad and their yep. publicist right there and doing all the shit that you know, as as someone who has been on many a television program uh, you have done and in for film and things like that, the whole shebang. But she said that there's a vulnerability and she deeply appreciates it. She spoke about it in a really gracious way. Um, Whereas I'd be like, oh shit, did you see them naked by accident? (laughs) Actual journalist is, is like, wow, I appreciate that people are willing, people who aren't, people who are usually rehearsed. Yeah. We'll still cycle through the talking points for a bit and then we'll just be like, I'm fucking stressed out. And then they get to have a real conversation, which is really cool. Yeah. I think, you know, in sort of referencing back to the idea of the of our of our our idea of civility spinning off its axis, I I don't say that as uh as if it's a bad thing. Mm. In in fact, in in a lot of ways, I think that it is entirely worthwhile to see it happen. Um, you know, you don't get real change without significant upheaval. Like that, it's the prerequisite to change, right? You have to have significant upheaval in order for there to be change. And I think that everybody was of the same mentality, regardless of where, what side of the political stripe you you landed on. Everyone was of the same mentality that that we something had to change, you know, and and that has been very much in the water as it were the last, you know, five years, um, four years. And here's an opportunity for that to really happen. I mean, I think that this whole thing will inarguably alter the way that we move forward. We get to choose what that looks like. You know, is it going to be one of those things where power is more centralized? Um, where, uh, you know, our, our reliance on um, ideology and ideologues is even more pronounced, or is it going to be a situation where um, 
we start to actually tear down or, and replace the institutions of power from the bottom up, you know, and, and I think we have an opportunity to do that. I think we, I think I've read this amazing article the other day about, um, you know, this, this whole thing has laid bare, um, the, the sort of uselessness, ultimate uselessness of influencer culture. Mm-hmm. And how there's a significant portion of that population that is seeing really extraordinary blowback right now because people are understanding, oh, these are these are just people who are ultimately in it for themselves. You know, whatever they're they're marketing, whatever shitty brand of clothing that they have created, and at the same time, like leading a you know a a, a growing you know parade of of you know, virus sufferers in their wake as they travel across, you know, their state or country or neighborhood promoting, promoting, promoting themselves. Um, yeah. And, and if, you, if you've got people who are motivated by, um, if you've got people who are out there in the world, somebody said it to me, I guess when I was interviewing my friend Judd Winnick, um, who was on The Real World a million years ago and who um, is a best-selling children's book author, he talked about uh, he said something like, we, we were famous for being famous. It just didn't, it was so weird. And he was like, and then it, you know, basically I'm paraphrasing, he said it went away and we got, we got to be normal. And he said, but now, um, people just do that. And that, that's, that's what they do forever. And, um, it's very strange. It's, it's destabilizing. It's not, it's not good for human beings to be that way. And so what we're talking about is that not only you and I are talking about, I think is that not only is it not good for the soul, for that to be it, for you really to not exist unless people are looking. But um, it's not good for the people around you in the wider world because if, if it's not about the art that you're creating or, or the sport that you're playing or the um, thing that you're advocating for passionately, uh, it's not about what the is it good. about? Yeah, if it's not about the good that you're trying to put into the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. Like, I, I don't... Uh, there are plenty of extraordinary athletes out there who I recognize their skill and their prowess, but I don't have, I could give two shits about what they have to say about anything because I don't view them as people who are actively attempting to put anything good into the world. Mm -hmm. And I think in a situation like this, where the world is so desperate for good to be put into it, because let's be clear, like the pandemic in and of itself is a terrible, terrifying thing. What it has exposed are the institutional failures that we as a human society, as a global society, not just a national, state, local society, but like as a global society, both macro and micro, it has exposed those institutional failings that we have across the board in terms of how we look after our most vulnerable, where we prioritize money uh, being spent or allocated, how we save or set things aside for a rainy day or a worst case scenario. Um, All of those things have sort of exposed, have have been exposed by this universal tragedy. Also, for, you know, as horrifying as it has been for many people in the quote-unquote first world, the levels of destruction and pain that this thing is going to cause when it actually starts hitting the truly, truly most vulnerable 
those people in refugee camps, um, the people in uh, living, you know, barely subsistence living in sub-Saharan Africa in war zones. You know that there there are um, there's a there's a lot of pain left to come uh, if we don't get in front of this. And you know, right now our way forward as a society is being dictated by who and what is putting what good into the world, how we are helping, how we are standing up for the people who are most vulnerable, not only in our immediate community, but in our global community. And if it's all about self-promotion, you're not putting any good into the world. You know what I mean? And I think people are realizing like, there's only so long that you can be distracted before the chickens come home to roost emotionally psychically you know Mm -hmm. um there's only so much instagram influencer bullshit you can watch before something in the back of your head starts to peek up and 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 say like all right enough what else because your your spirit speaks up uh your soul speaks up and it's like what the fuck i need something more to this like what this isn't helping anything you know why why have i invested so much time and energy into this and all I'm helping is this person stroke their ego. And like, why would you want to participate in helping somebody stroke their ego when you can actually help somebody eat? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and um, I, I think that that is part of, a, you know, maybe a fringe benefit of, of this whole thing. And I am somebody who's very hesitant to use that, that term, particularly when human beings are dying. Um, you know, I, I don't, I'm a little bit reticent to, to be a silver lining looker, uh, in times like this, because that experience is not true for everybody. In fact, there are people whose hearts are being broken as we speak by this thing. And, um, the horrifying reality of, of COVID-19 deaths is that more often than not, you die alone and in great pain. And like, that is monumentally terrifying and heartbreaking and something that needs to be seriously considered, you know, during the Syrian refugee crisis, which PS still ongoing. Um, I should add here that you are a board member, right? Mm-hmm. At Inara. Yeah. Um, and so you traveled to, I want to say it was last year. You traveled to Beirut to mm-hmm. um, interview and be with families, Syrian refugees who are living there. And, and can you tell me, I'm sorry to, Interrupting, no, no. but can you just tell us about, um, and it's inara.org, by the way. It's a great place to um, donate some uh, money to the most vulnerable people in the world. But can you tell us for a moment what Inara is, what Inara does? Yeah, so I sit on the board of, Amanda and I both actually sit on the board of directors of Inara, and we provide um, life-saving and life-changing medical care to refugee children who have been wounded as a result of conflict. Um, Now, that's either as a direct result of conflict uh, or, you know, what we call like the, in the biosphere of war. So, um, you know, there are many different organizations that that help uh, people who have been wounded in conflict, um, MSF. Doctors Without Borders, um, you know, UNHCR, they're, they're extraordinary, Red Cross, Red Crescent, Red, you know, there, there's all sorts of various different uh, extraordinary outfits that do really great work and that we step in to fill the gaps when um, certain organizations' mandates won't take care of a case or they're overloaded or whatever it is. Um, like a child who is living in what we might call substandard housing uh, and is burned. Um, what, you know, so they're not in there is burned by an electrical fire. Right. So like right. you guys help 
uh, that kid, because that kid, that toddler, isn't right in the conflict. They're quote unquote safe because they have refugee status, let's assume in this hypothetical and also real situation. I've seen you share stories like this, where they're in a country where they have quote unquote safe housing, where they might be living with five to six to 10 other family members in a small apartment and there's an electrical fire and they are terribly burned and it's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. They were not killed and this did not happen during a bombing. But that child needs care and the private money resources for the family are simply not there. And Inara steps in and helps. That's exactly right. You know, that, that's, that is one of those uh, injuries that we, would, that we you know, characterize as happening in the biosphere of war, where like, this is a person who is living outside. Remember, particularly with Syrians, uh, this, this was a middle class society up until 10 years ago when, um, when the civil war started. And so, you know, these were people who are used to living a, a relatively, many of them used to living a middle class life that are now driven into living out of tents or, as you said, living 10 family members to a one room apartment. Um, and in those situations, you know, fires, uh, boiling water, boiling oil spills, you know, these sort of things um, can alter the course of a family's life uh, irrevocably. You know, not, not only does a child need care, medical care, emergency, immediate medical care, but in those situations, um, our research has shown that, uh, you know, one child, who, particularly the younger ones who need care, um, it takes... Uh, on average, like two adults to help care for that person. Those adults are taken out of the workforce. They're they're removed from the ability to provide for their family. Um, And so it just perpetuates this suffering. Uh, And and if you can step in and provide that medical care, not only do you allow um, those adults to return to the workforce and and return to productivity for their family and for the society, you allow that child to be able to return to school. You allow that child to become a member, a productive member of society, you know, and that's not to say that there, that doesn't come with um, difficulties, but we also provide counseling um, in those situations as well. Uh, it's a great organization. It does a lot of good. And we, we have a, a COVID-19 response that we're working with right now where we're, um, you know, we have to remember a lot of refugees live without running water. Um, so the idea of having cleaning supplies is like a complete, that's like a dream. So what we're doing right now is we're, uh, uh, partnering with the Molham volunteer team and we're putting together care boxes, uh, with food, um, soap and cleaning supplies. And they're being delivered to these refugee families. And, you know, if, if they need instructions about how to use various different things, they're being given those instructions in the moment, but you know, most people know how to clean up after themselves. They just don't have the wherewithal uh, financially to be able to provide. So we're providing the food and, um, uh, and cleaning supplies so that we can help stave off uh, COVID when it hits, you know, the camps, when it starts moving into the camps, because these are people who are quite literally the most compromised in terms of their immune systems. Um, and and it, it, will, be, it will spread by, like wildfire, as any flu does, like as any uh, yeah. easily communicable dis- disease does uh-huh. in a population. I mean, I'm sure, I don't, I don't have any uh, data on this, but one can imagine, I think about like the, the Warsaw Ghetto during World War II. Uh, if yeah. somebody got sick, I can only imagine that these people living in absolute like nightmarish psychological circumstances um, that it just that it spread much less the 
you know, in that particular situation that I am thinking of the horrific impending doom that they all felt. Uh, okay. Anybody living in close work, people living in what we, in what we call slums. Um, Right. People living right. in, it just, it, you see it in a household. If you've ever been somebody with a bunch of roommates and one person gets strep throat, everybody's going right. to get strep throat. So if you picture that with people who have absolutely no access to the kind of, uh, you can't just go to urgent care. Urgent no, no. care would be a luxury. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the extrapolation point, I think that helps most people sort of understand it is like, you know, what we're seeing in, in the United States and in, in other sort of Western countries is uh, how quickly it spreads through nursing homes, mm-hmm. right? Because you have a very vulnerable, everybody in the area, everybody in the home is vulnerable on some level. Um, and if you extrapolate from that understanding, multiply it by, <laughs> you know, infinity and take it to the depths of forever to quote Joe Black, meet Joe Black. Um, you know, sure, everybody quotes meet Joe Black <laughs> when they talk about international health crises and refugees. Who, whomst among us has not quoted meet Joe Black? <laughs> That's amazing. A great motion picture. It is a great motion it picture. It's beautiful. Uh, it is. It really, it really, really is. But you know, that is, uh, that's the reality of it. And, and we're trying to help stave that, that tragedy off. Um, you know, while, Attempting to, and, 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 it, and it does help the host communities too. I mean, you're talking about communities and specifically with what we're working with in Lebanon and Turkey, these host communities have taken on an extraordinary responsibility, allowing these refugees to, to come into their country and set up camps. And, um, it is a, it, you know, an explosion or a bloom of COVID in the camps puts the host communities in extraordinary danger too. And so staving off the, 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 the spread in the camps does so much for the host communities as well. And, you know, also we are uh, hoping that uh, with this fundraiser, we'll, we'll raise enough, we'll be able to put together enough packages that once we get done sort of spreading this around the, the camps, um, we'll be able to take it and start delivering it into the host communities as well. Um, and that's awesome. And that's a really wonderful act of, of goodwill. And because of course, you know, anybody who's lived in a community that had a racially motivated incident against uh, immigrants, refugees or not in the United States can attest to the fact that there is often tension between these communities that sometimes uh, the, you know, you don't always have the most welcoming host community, or perhaps you have some people who are, inc- I see it here in Los Angeles, working with my friend Miri, who lives up the street from me uh, with Miri's List. Oh my God, what an incredible organization they are. Yeah, they're just the, the awesomest. She, I saw, she had put up some social distancing video of her and, um, and a neighbor like just I don't know doing playing music or something on the front lawn and I looked and was like I like texted her I was like Mary I I've known you for two years I live fucking three doors down what the shit like that was the first moment I know that's not but that was the first moment when I realized during this whole thing it must have been around St. Patrick's Day right so like by that day I've been socially distancing for like four days and I was like oh, fuck, I really don't know my neighbors. And I went and did a socially distant delivery of crackers and we talked from six feet away about how stressed we were. Nice. Yeah. But I know from from talking to Miri, like most, even in a very diverse metropolitan area in these Mm -hmm. United States, the melting pot or the mosaic, right? Whatever 
beautiful metaphor we want to put on it. Sure. But even in a place where many people are very welcoming, many of us are descended from recently or generations ago from refugees, hmm. uh, that there can be tension, that there can be tension when people are resettled, much less in countries where suddenly you have a, a, a camp of people. Um, and it is very wonderful that Inara is, it's, it, I wouldn't call it town-gown relations exactly, but that Inara is very invested in, in uh, helping navigate those relationships. Well, yeah, we're desperate, you know, we're, we're desperately working, particularly like Lebanon, you have a situation where one in every four people in the country is a refugee at this point. Wow. You know, that is an extraordinary figure. And uh, Turkey is is uh, is in the same sort of boat. I mean, they're they're obviously not that high. Jordan as well. Um, There's a there's, you know, there's a lot of tension that grows uh, over time. This is it's just the reality of what happens. I mean, you think like this sort of racism in this country is bad, Uh, you know, tack on a couple thousand years of you know, sectarian strife on top of it and, um, you know, have the British come in and draw a couple of imaginary lines in the sand after World War One and uh, and two. And, you know, then all of a sudden everything starts to become a lot more tense. And, you know, we want to make sure that everybody is cared for and everybody is taken care of. Um, the host communities deserve just as much protection and care, uh, you know, in the long term. Um, as 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 can be given, you know. Uh, obviously, we our priority is to take care of the most vulnerable, um, but we don't do that with uh, the disregard that the host community can be vulnerable to, particularly in a situation like this. Um, so yeah, we're trying we're trying our best. You know, it is not an easy road to hoe, but uh, road to hoe. But you know, we're we're we do it. We do our best a day at a time, and um, I think that at this point, that's sort of all you can do. I know I talk a lot on this podcast um, when I'm not busy hitting on people's wives in episodes. <laughs> I talk about um, different, you know, well, I try to, at least in every episode, I think I've done it in most of them by this point, um, raise awareness around, or at least give a shout out to a nonprofit. A lot of times it's the Actors Fund, which I love very much, oh, but, yeah. uh, which of course, uh, but if you, if you can, you know, if you buy, sometimes we'll say like, you got five bucks organizations will appreciate that. It's okay. Like it's all right. If you, if I think a lot of times, um, just being raised with the notion of philanthropy, I can't do philanthropy. I can't do charity unless it's a substantial number. They won't care or that'll be weird. Ah, Five bucks would be great. That's awesome. Send five bucks to Inara, send 5 million, send five, five bucks is great. No, that's the thing there. There's this, this thing that I've sort of, I've seen, Particularly in Western cultures, this doesn't exist as much, frankly, in in the East, the Middle East. Um, but in Western cultures, I think it has something to do with the sort of free market ideology. But the, the, it's this thing that I refer to as donor shame. Oh, that's real. Where, yeah, where people feel like I am not wealthy enough to give at a worthwhile level, therefore I won't give at all. Whereas realistically, if you remove that impediment, what you have is a situation, we'll use the current situation as an example, where uh, a number of people are staying at home, um, they don't, the, the money that they would normally spend, the five bucks a day or whatever it is, four bucks a day that they would normally spend at Starbucks, uh, is not going out. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if you remove that donor shame impediment and everybody who had it sort of stopped, kicked in the four bucks and said, you know, whatever, this is what I can do right now. You take that four bucks and you start adding it up by the number of people. It, that happens so fast. Like you go from four bucks to 40,000 bucks very, very quickly. And, and I know that when you're talking about like relief packages in the federal government in the trillions of dollars, and you're talking about wealth consolidated in certain people like Bill Gates or Bezos or whoever in the billions and hundreds of billions of dollars, um, that doesn't seem like very much, but I'm telling you, it costs us even at the current inflated prices, it costs us 80 bucks to put together a box with food, soap, and cleaning supplies. And I'm not talking like a shoe box. I'm talking like a proper crate size, you know, That's box awesome. that it takes like a couple of pretty strong dudes to drag around. It costs us 80 bucks to put together something like that that can take care of a whole family. All right, this isn't just one person. 80 bucks can take care of a whole family for quite a while. You know, your four bucks adds up really quick in that situation and does legitimate, actionable good that you can see, that you can feel. Um, and, you know, that removing the shame or the idea of shame or the idea of, oh, well, it's just a little bit and it won't go that far is something that all not-for-profits face this weird uphill fight against in this society. And I'm hopeful that part of what will change around this whole, the COVID rebirth on the other side of this is that that, that idea will be removed. You know, the, I think that it comes from this sort of market idea that, that has always seemed very disturbing to me. And I'm not an economist, so I can't speak to this um, with any sort of authority, but from the outside, just as a person who's looking at it with logic, this is something that, that has always seemed very odd to me and very disturbing to me, that company A makes a $1 million profit in 2019, okay? Company A breaks even, does not make a $1 million profit in 2020. That is considered by economists to be a loss. But when I look at that logically, all that means is they broke even. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't make a million dollars, but they didn't lose anything either. It's, and, and like, and it gets even weirder than that. So like company A makes a million dollar profit in 2019 and, or it makes a $5 million profit in 2019 and they make a $1 million profit in, 2000, in 2020, that's seen as a $4 million loss. And I'm like, no, that's still a $1 million profit. Yeah, that's the, dope. <laughs> that's still profit. What, 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 what happens in that $4 million difference is expectation. And as a society, we exist so much on expectation about how things are supposed to be or how we want them to be that we strip away the beauty of and the goodness of what is. We do it to ourselves financially. We do it to ourselves economically. We do it to ourselves spiritually. We do it to ourselves emotionally. We do it to ourselves in every conceivable way. This is how I think things are supposed to be versus this is how things are. 
when I just looked to the right really quickly, it was because an uh, image came up in my head of us comparing ourselves to each other uh, when it comes to work. What right. have I booked? What have I done? Um, what promotion did I get? What raise did I get? On a very, I, what you said just hit me on a very uh, basic level. Uh, so it's it, it's true on the macro level. It's true on the micro level. It's true on the personal level. Yeah. Like, oh, that person. Mm, that person's got more time sober than I do. That person right. meditated for longer today. You right. can make it about, and that person prayed for longer. That sure. person um, had more, they reposted more happy birthday wishes on their birthday. Like, it would right. be about the most basic shit that, that you and I, and everybody, everybody can look at and go, ah, it's not that important. But it feels important at the time. And if you can give just a little bit, I mean, shit, like, you know, whether or not you, you like uh, his policies and there's a lot to love and a lot to not love, President Barack Obama got elected uh, from, in part because he had a funding machine that was run largely by younger people, um, a marketing machine that, and I say that, and I say this in a, it is a benevolent thing. I think they did a fantastic job. They caught on to the fact that they could ask people to donate five bucks and people yeah. do it. And nobody had done that in, in, uh, on the presidential scale, right? We didn't have the tools really through the internet, I think before 2018 to just no, really. No, and that, that idea it. became like the, the selling point banner of Bernie Sanders entire movement. Cause you give a little, you give a little in Ken and keep going and keep going and keep going. You're probably going to give a little in future. And the thing is that if you've got, like when I interviewed Roxanne Gay on the podcast, we talked about um, the importance of, of putting cash in hands of people. Um, yeah. So, so domestic, so at home, you can, uh, you know, do something that Rox, I've seen Roxanne do it. I've seen Shay Serrano do it. I've seen Frederick T. Joseph do it. I've seen a bunch of people do it. I've done it like on a very small scale where you go, Hey, do you need help with X, Y, Z? Um, you know, message me or drop your Venmo. You can do that. You can, you can do it for even Venmo, PayPal, your friends, family who needs help, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you can also give $5 to an R. You give $10, you can give 20 bucks. And if you can only give five bucks now, next year, when shit's really popping off for you, you can give a thousand dollars if you want to. You can just do a little bit. It's okay. And you'll feel better. That's the brand. The brand is selfish altruism and the brand is strong. To borrow Jesus and Maros. <laughs> which I do all the time. The brand is strong. Uh, the brand of this podcast is selfish altruism, which is uh, helping other people helps you feel better. So why not fucking do it? It's a no, real absolutely. Jersey attitude. No, I love it. I love it. And, you know, I, I think that, again, I think that the ultimately what it comes down to in, in, in the whole thing is, is the removal of expectation. And I mean that not just in terms of this specific subject, but this, this, this idea of us as a society moving forward and growing from here. Let's remove expectation and actually start dealing with what is. You know what I mean? We, we, we exist too much in how things are quote-unquote supposed to be as opposed to the owning the realization, the reality of how things are right now. And that puts us into direct conflict with reality. And when you come into direct conflict with reality, you get Donald Trump, you get Bolsonaro, you get, you know, these megalomaniacal, you know, cult leaders who say, I'm the only one who can fix it because they prey upon fear and expectation. 
they are the abusive national stepdads that yep. sometimes we acquire because when you are, um, I mean, there's a lot of obviously intersecting different factors that go into this, but broadly speaking, uh, people who are charming, who are charismatic, um, who know how to speak to people, who know how to be entertaining, who know how to make eye contact, who know how to use media effectively, can use that for good or for evil. It's very rare that they can use it for neutral. <laughs> I don't think that's possible. They use yeah. it for good or for, or for evil. And um, sometimes it's a mixed bag, but sometimes it's pretty fucking pure evil. And when people do that, it's this, it feels like when you see somebody you love get into a relationship with a charming abuser. At first, you can be like, how the fuck can she be with that asshole? How can he be with that nightmarish harpy? She's so mean. Nobody likes going to dinner at their house anymore. And then your friend goes, oh, we're always hard on strong women. And you're like, yeah, but that person objectively, while she is a woman, is an asshole. Like, you know, and then you really look at it and you're like, oh, that person, that asshole, regardless of gender, locked in on a need that they saw in yeah. this individual and they went for it and now they own their ass and right. if you can be a, a demonic charmer and lock in on a perceived need and just yep. hammer it home people start to live in your fucked up reality and you put enough money behind that and intersecting you know throw in some uh white supremacy throw in entrenched patriarchy throw in a bunch of other factors you get donald trump congratulations yep. we're fucked right Right. This has been the longest three years, certainly in, in my time on this planet. Oh my God. Raising a, a tiny person at this time. Holy fuck, dude. I give you guys a lot. Everybody's got little tiny people. And I mean, I don't know if, if your offspring is old enough yet to comprehend the nature of geopolitics. <laughs> Probably. You guys are real smart. <laughs> like, I mean, God, telling your kid who the president is, Jesus Christmas. No, I know. Listen, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that she's not old enough now to be in a place where she has to learn who the presidents of the United States are. And, you know, I, you, you run into this sort of potential problem, too, where it's like, oh, look, two liberals out here bashing Donald Trump because, you know, blah, 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 blah. But the reality of the situation is that if this, most of his supporters, if they were being honest with themselves, and that is a big if, but if they were being honest with themselves, if, and I say this pretty, pretty uh, repetitively and to the point where I'm sure it's annoying to anybody who listens, I say this to, you know, family members I have that um, support the, the, the current occupant of the White House. And by the way, you're listening to, like, yes, you're listening to critically acclaimed man of stage and screen, Thomas Sadowski, but you're also listening to a Polish-Italian kid who grew up in College Station, Texas. So, like, uh, and you're listening to a fucking, you know, you guys know this if you've been listening enough, a douchebag from New Jersey, which would be me. So, like, trust. We have, yes, we do have loved ones who voted for this asshole. Absolutely, oh we do. Uh, oh, my God. I come from, I come from a world where the, the you know, it is deeply entrenched. The suspicion of the coast is deeply, deeply entrenched. And, I, and, and you know, I, and I, I grew up with it um, and it, it carries some of it with me too. And I, it has actually served me very well. So I don't, I don't completely dismiss it. I think it's actually pretty worthwhile 
uh, in some ways. That said, were any of his supporters to actually be honest with themselves and look back and say, had Barack Obama done any of the things that Donald Trump has done on a regular basis, including bashing the press, talking about how good his ratings are during a pandemic, you know, just little things, let alone the big things like being suspected of colluding with a foreign adversary in, in regard to allowing, uh, you know, election interference or not punishing them enough for election interference. If people were honest with themselves about it, if there was even a suspicion about Barack Obama having engaged in any of those sort of behaviors, they would be absolutely apoplectic. Lest we forget, Fox News did multiple segments on President Obama when he wore a tan suit. Um, <laughs> you know nightmare. What, I mean? what a and, nightmare. And I know. And and they also applauded Arizona Governor Jan Brewer when she met President Obama on uh, the tarmac and stuck her finger in his face. You know, that was, uh, that was her sticking up, you know, well, God forbid anybody stick up for their constituents to Donald Trump. They're immediately seen as, you know, this elitist who is attempting blah, 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 blah. You can cite chapter and verse all day long. What it requires in having the conversation is that people on the other side be willing to actually own the truth, which is that if the shoe were on the other foot, they would be behaving very, very differently. And when we can come to that sort of meeting ground, more often than not, it has been my experience that when I can get people to acknowledge that, things start to shift a little bit and they start to own like, oh yeah, no, I wouldn't be okay with that at all. But the reason that I support him is because I'm scared and I think I'm scared because things are changing too fast for me and I don't know where I would fit in after everything changes. I think is ultimately the thing that, that I, I have discovered lies underneath it when I get to have these conversations. And that is such an understandable fear. Um, and it is one that I, I personally find quite easy to have a great deal of compassion towards. Um, and when I can get on that level with people and sit and, and just bear witness to it and say like, Hey, I look, I get it. You know, Things are changing. Things are changing very fast, and you don't know where you fit in on the other side of it. Again, this sort of comes back to that thing of expectation. You had an expectation of what life was going to look like day to day to day to day to day. It was going to start here and it was going to end here, and you know, but there were going to be some things that were going to be constant. Well, that was your first mistake, believing that there was anything in this life that is constant. Um, everything changes and it changes at its own pace. And your job is to see the change happening and understand why it's happening and allow it to, to allow that change to happen. Whether or not you choose to participate in it or not is entirely a personal decision, but standing in opposition to it as a society, like refusing to allow a society as a whole to change, all that does is cause incredible amount of problems and pain and suffering, mostly for yourself, because you cannot stop change. It is coming. It is happening. 
all you can do is hope to slow it down. Why you would want to when it comes to civil rights, equal rights, the acceptance of the LGBTQ uh, population, any of that sort of stuff is a complete mystery to me. I don't understand it. I think that it, 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 that's just fear. When you let that fear go and say, okay, well, you know, take on that very Yankee sort of mentality of you do what you do on your side of the fence and I'll do what I do on my side of the fence and everybody just get along. That's a New Hampshire, I call that a New Hampshire philosophy. That's right. Ah, man. Fuck it. That's, that's just old school, good Yankee mentality. Like, all right, well, look, you know, that's what they do over there and this is what we do over here and God bless everybody. You know, like that, when you have that sort of mentality about things, it's a hell of a lot easier to just sort of allow things to, to move forward. And, and you, you don't get rope burn. You don't get emotional, psychological, societal rope burn, which is sort of what we're in right now. We're, you know, it's, it's, it's painful to watch, particularly for these people who are like, well, no, we're going to roll things back. No, you're not. You better fucking not. No, things are never going to go back. You can, those of us who believe in science, which is a lot of us, a lot of us, a lot of people (laughs) out here, uh, aren't that interested in the fucking because what happens when we roll things back we we're gonna get see more bodies in potter's graves which is what we're seeing in, in can you believe that new york city did you that, that's one of the most disturbing now granted you know those are not all one of the little pieces of information that if you dig into the those images underneath the headlines you know those potter's graves are being filled up at a higher rate but those are not necessarily covid patients those are mm-hmm. just the reason they're hap- that the, the the reason that those potters field graves are being filled up uh, more rapidly right now is because the covid fatalities are filling up the the morgues uh at a faster rate than they can um sustain and so the 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 bodies that are unclaimed um, are usually held for 30 days. Wow. Uh, they have changed that now to, I believe it's 14 days. That is um, delicious fuck and macabre and very real because that's, that is the granular, the base level shit that happens going back to the beginning of our conversation. We talked about, um, you know, the concept, the notion that if, if the, if waste management goes out the window, <laughs> That's right. it. But we're right. getting, we're talking about garbage. We're talking about as basic as who gets what ventilator. And we're talking about, oh, fuck, we got to clear out the morgue. I mean, you know, I had a friend who, who right. passed away a few years ago um, in New York City who, who died by suicide. And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful and glad that because she had a family and friends who cared about her, because we were talking about looking for her and where we find her, that when her body washed up, um, on the shore of the Hudson that, or was identified by a fisherman, I think, uh, that, um, she was identified quickly because those are bodies that sit there and then families wonder forever. So if you think about it, 30 days, especially if you are somebody who, um, is looking for a family member who has, you know, a child who's gone missing, um, somebody who's, and you're far from home, right? You don't live there. You can't get right in there and deal with city and county officials, wherever we're talking about. Uh, If they're only holding that body for a certain amount of time, like you need that 30 days. So for that to be cut down is necessary. I get it. Like I'm not quibbling with the decision. It just really drives home 
how this is rippling outwards and affecting people in all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways. Yeah, we are, like I said, we exist on the margins. We exist on a razor's edge, you know. Um, It really, and let's be very clear, as devastating as COVID can be, it is nothing compared to uh, other pandemics that have happened in the past or the or ones that will come will come in the future that's scary to think about that this is a trial run for our generation in a sense to figure out how to deal with something like this yeah hopefully we won't ever have to deal with it again but our kids might Uh, our kids kids might they will oh no no, they will they definitely they definitely will um you know i'm glad that my grandmother uh didn't have to see it happen again you know i mean she lived through the 1918 um, Spanish flu pandemic. And, and, uh, I, you know, this would have been the second time in her lifetime. There are people out there who, who survived the first time around. Um, I'm pretty sure my friend, I'm not 100% sure, but, uh, I believe it was my friend, Molly, Mary McGlynn, great, great independent writer, director. Uh, she was, her job now has been directing and producing on Bless This Mess, a TV program. Uh, but, uh, she is named after, and she will be a guest on the program. Uh, she was named, I'm pretty sure Molly, I mean, in an Irish family, you're going to have a lot of Mollys. But sure. uh, I'm pretty sure she was named after her great-grandmother who died in 1918 as a result of that of that pandemic. Right. Uh, so, so the legacy, some of those people, uh, you know, some people who were alive then are very old now and do not remember it, of course. But we do have people who remember vivid memories of their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents describing in horrific detail what happened and, and what that was like. And so, uh, you know, the we have those, we have to keep, you know, we have to keep memories of this time alive for our descendants so that they take good care. Because you see that when people forget when the memories go away and they don't live through the generations, we repeat. I think that's, we repeat history when we have the memory. We sure as fuck repeat history when those memories die and then they come up again. Right. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's the whole idea of, of behind the remembrance movements, right? Mm-hmm. The never again movement. That's the whole point behind it is that we are absolutely doomed. Underscore, all caps, italics, different font, add the bold, doomed to repeat history if we don't remember it and if we don't prepare for it. And, you know, Jesus, we, we, we had the, the, the Holocaust, you know, less than a, a, a full lifetime ago. Mm-hmm. And subsequently, we have seen any number of different genocides perpetrated that people just sort of bury their head in the sand about, you know, and, and that's, we will have another pandemic. Um, because that's what the world does. That's how it limits population. That's what, that's what mother nature does. This is how it happens. Like, Guns, germs, and steel. Jared Diamond. Hello. Absolutely. It happens. Yeah. This is, and so what we can do is manage our response and we can learn. Right. And like, and, and what, and who, who do we want to be on the other side of this is the thing that's very interesting to me. Um, you know, a lot of people, I, I've talked to a number of people who work in politics, who work in, in Washington, who work in journalism. Um, I'm fortunate enough to know a lot of great minds and great public servants. And many of them are very concerned that, you know, we're going to have another four years of what we're dealing with now. Um, I share that concern. I know you do as well. I could very well see that happening. 
Oh yeah, that's it's. I would say at this point, it's probably more likely than not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no, you know, it could go off on that for quite a while. But yes, I think I will say that regardless of who the candidate was going to be um, for the Democratic Party, uh, it's very difficult to get some people who are quite thoughtful even to quote unquote uh, what is it change horses midstream. Mm. And especially in the midst of a crisis, um, I remember in 2004, talking to some people who were very thoughtful, very intelligent, said, oh, we're in wartime, though. You know, 9-11 was just three years ago. Like, Carrie seems fine, but, you know, Bush is doing all right. Like, no, he wasn't. But, like, maybe, you know, should we mix it up? Like, there is that, which goes back to something you spoke of earlier, uh, that fear of change, even when change would be really good. No, even when it's necessary. Yeah. And let's be very, very clear. It is necessary. The, the constitutional democracy, the constitutional republic, sorry, that we live under cannot sustain another four years of, of its current battering. It can't. You know, it's an incredible document. We're learning that. Um, we have learned that over the last three years. It is an incredible document uh, that is incredibly resilient um, in terms of its ability, its staying power. However, we are also learning how unbelievably fragile it has been made um, by any number of decisions handed down by the judiciary and by, you know, signing statements and and uh, and by um, the the sort of uh, reality of. Uh, of the imperial presidency, which has been, you know, something that has been growing slightly sneakily over any number of administrations, but is now here in, 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 I wouldn't even say in its full glory yet, um, but is well down the road. Uh, We, it's unsustainable. It's unsustainable if we want to continue to believe that the document and the foundational documents are, uh, actually the guiding force behind this country rather than just a, you know, an old piece of parchment in a, behind some glass in a museum. Um, it's the only, I mean, it's the same sort of argument made in a different way by people who talk about, uh, Bible-based faith. Although in that case, there are about a zillion different versions of the Bible. You can look at, you just pick (laughs) one that suits you and you make up whatever shit you want to interpret it and it suits you. We have one U.S. constitution and it's not that old. We're pretty clear on what folks intended when they wrote it. Now, do we agree with everything that that the so-called founding fathers uh, put in there? Um, Not necessarily, and that's all right. We can talk about it. We can change things. That's a good thing. Yeah, that's why they left us an escape clause. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) They were smart enough to leave future generations an escape clause. Like, look, this works for us right now, but y'all go ahead and change it as you need to. (laughs) If you need to... To fuck this up. You can do it because we didn't. I mean, this is fine. Where's it? And 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 how wonderful and how fucking amazing and how, uh, in a sense, revolutionary and how beautiful the, the great American experiment is in that way. But it's only useful if we actually uh, do something. Use it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not chapter and verse, man. It's not the red letters. It's not. It's it's um, it is. You know, people talk about it as a living document. I, I, which is a, a nice, I guess, way of painting it. I actually see it as a dying document. 
mm. is a document that is constantly that is that is made designed to slough off the dead parts that don't work anymore. That's beautiful. Woo! You're not ever going to run for office, are you? My no, and I'll tell you why. Because standing on a platform and saying that the Constitution is a dead document that sloughs off its useless skin doesn't ah! inspire people the way that, that the Shining City on the Hill speech does. Regardless of how accurate I think it might be, it, uh, it doesn't play as well. You, you, know? need, you need that Peggy Newton speechwriting ability. Jesus, what a gal. Uh, <laughs> Damn. Yeah. You know, I think you do play a very credible mayor. Oh, <laughs> I enjoy doing it very much. It's a fun TV show to be a part of. We have a really good time. Well, we've gotten into exactly what I wanted to get into, which is some deep, deep stuff, which is a good thing. Um, let's, let's, I know you have, uh, you know, a life to get to. So, uh, <laughs> thank you for giving me so much of your time. You've given me more time and I, than I requested, uh, and I gladly took it. Um, can you tell folks where they can see you on television or perhaps on a streaming service? If they're sure. like, Hey, I want to, I want the oeuvre, yeah, oeuvre. My oeuvre. Um, Tommy Sadowski oeuvre. Yeah, currently, uh, currently, my 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 um, my acting job is on a television program called Tommy on the CBS network. is also available on CBS All Access. If you haven't had an opportunity to see it yet, you can catch up there. Um, Part of the legacy of our friendship, in which I. Uh, uh, yell at you about uh, and objectify important blonde women in your life because that mm -hmm. program stars the great Edie Falco. Indeed, the truly great Edie Falco and it's really worth watching. She's uh she's she's pretty awesome. Um so that's every Thursday night uh at 10 Eastern 9 Central on CBS and like I said CBS All Access and then you know if you want to go back and watch um Life in Pieces, I think we're on Hulu and Netflix and then if you want to watch the newsroom, that's on HBO. And uh, how many people say to you, "What do you think the newsroom episode about this would be like?" Oh my god! Yeah, it happens. I see it on Twitter all the fucking time. People are like, "What would the newsroom episode of this be like?" And I'm like, "I don't. Uh, I mean, it would have some cold play, and it would be moving. <laughs> like, be very fucking moving." Tommy would like stare deeply into someone's eyes. Uh, someone would throw something. You know, Jake Lacey. Right, he was on that show, wasn't he? Did I make Jake? that up? John Gallagher Jr. No, John Gallagher Jr. Wait, yeah, Jake was. Yeah, right. No. No. John Gallagher. Who was on that show? John Jeff Gallagher Jr. Great. Jo jo Jeff Daniels, Emily Mortimer, Allison Pill, Olivia Munn, John Gallagher Jr., uh, Adina Porter, Dev Patel, Chris Chalk, Margaret Judson, Wynn. Let me tell you. I'll tell you. Jane Fonda. Chris Messina. Why did I decide? No, Jake Lacey. Harry Cruz. It's Jake Lacey. He was on Girls, the same program, really. Who who doesn't get Girls and the newsroom confused? <laughs> uh, Dealing with the same issues, exact same tone, same walk and talk sort indeed. of aesthetic. Uh, I was, wait, I just had a thought. It was real deep, JK. <sighs> it was real trashy. Uh, and it was about the fact that. I don't remember. It's gone. I need more espresso. Anyway, that's a delightful fucking show. Uh, the newsroom is a goddamn delight. It's worth probably worth a rewatch right now. Wait, Project, what, 
What about your background in, in uh, the theater? Do we anticipate that once Broadway is alive or off Broadway or theater in general, once we're allowed to gather in a public space to watch uh, life unfold upon a stage, do you think you shall return to these? Oh yeah, absolutely. You'll never be able to keep me out of the theater. Um, you know, and that's the thing. I really hope one of the things that the our generation, our younger generation of people um, dives into on the other side of this is uh, is the beauty of of gathering together uh, to watch a performance uh, live. Um, That's you know, going to be very special when we're permitted to and when it's actually safe, right? Not when fucking the creamsicle craft dinner Palpatine in charge <laughs> tells us, like, go out and do whatever the fuck. Like, fuck right. you, man. I'll add a year. But when it's actually cool to yep. do that. Won't that be so exciting to- It'll be thrilling. I can't imagine what the first curtain call on Broadway- Oh, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> is gonna be like the first show back. You know what I mean? Like- Ooh, I, I, Shakespeare I, in the Park? Holy fuck, I dude. Know, I know. It's genuinely something that like, that gives me peace. Like when I start to get really, really freaked out, it's, I, I just think forward to, okay, when we, when Broadway, when the lights go back up and and um, and the audience has come back in and the curtain comes down at the end of the show. Like that outpouring of emotion is gonna be so exquisite. And I, I just, uh, that keeps my head above water when things start to get really dark. And I really hope people remember that that is where the really good stuff happens. Like curled up on your couch with your bonbons watching Netflix is all fun and all fine and good. But like the real experience in life is in, and I think that it speaks to the oldest, oldest part of us as a, as a creature is gathering in a dark room to listen to stories being told live. That's and so that, important. Shout so out to the Actors Fund, by the way. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. If you, walk, if you walk away from this episode doing anything, throw some money to uh, Inara, I-N-A-R-A dot org and to uh, the Actors Fund, uh, helping right. ev everyone in entertainment. I was watching a live stream yesterday that went real off the rails, and it was delightful with uh, Taika Waititi and Mark Ruffalo, uh, <laughs> just like being like, it was real. Mark Ruffalo kept having to tell people that he wasn't stoned. He's like, I'm not stoned. I just have bad eyesight. I don't have my glasses. I'll get my glasses. And it was just supposed to be them watching Thor Ragnarok, and that sort of happened. When when Tycho was interviewing Tessa Thompson, that was like so they sort of stayed. And then they just started talking about cooking dinner, and then uh, Mark Ruffalo came in, and they just started making fun of each other. <laughs> and uh, and then Tycho's youngest daughter made a lot of like really solid. It was it was like a rap battle. Like she started sort of like battling Mark Ruffalo, telling knock knock jokes, and hers were really good. Wow. And it was very special. But what, what I loved about it, in addition to the fact that I was eating a lot of food at the time, and just like so tired, having been up since 6 a.m., was, uh, you know, the shout outs to nonprofits. And I really appreciated that one of the shout outs was, was to the Actors Fund. And I know that um, uh, future guest, Jay Smith Cameron, is doing... Oh she's coming on the show. I love her. We're talking about doing a very important web series starring our cats. Uh, <laughs> I love Jay. She's so good, dude. Oh my god. She's so good. I have a friend who I will not mention who has been a guest on this podcast, who is like pretty hardcore in 
their uh, crush on on Jerry on Succession. <laughs> I don't, I don't know, I don't know how they're going to function when they listen to like. Listen, I know the Tommy Sadowski stands out there are real excited. I get it. I am one of you, but the fucking the hardcore obsession of people with the character of Jerry on Succession. Oh yeah. I'm going to get some real weird emails and I and pro, from people I know and I am very excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> the point is support inara.org, support the actors fund. Tell uh, folks where they can find you. I feel like you're a lot more active on uh, Instagram and getting the message out because Twitter is a bit shitty, but yeah, you also go on the Twitter too. Yeah, uh, very rarely. I put the bullet in Twitter a while ago. So you can mostly find me on Instagram. Um, I don't Facebook. Uh, T-H-O-M-A-S underscore S-A-D-O-S-K-I. Uh, and that's that's my Instagram. Uh, Tommy, thank you so much for all your time. Be uh, safe. Thank you. I, lo- I look forward to getting together with you at Blended Family Thanksgivings uh, in, in future. It's going to be really sweet. And uh, I, I feel like we can, we can really, it's going to be fine. You know, you'll find somebody else. <laughs> And that was my interview with the awesome Tommy Sadowski. Check out inara.org, that's I-N-A-R-A.org, to learn more about what that incredible organization does. So, as a reminder, go to at Sarah J. Benincasa today, Friday, May 1st, on Instagram Live all day long, taking some breaks. The schedule is posted there. It's the last post that I did. And you can see me interview all kinds of really cool people from the worlds of comics and film and art, and it's totally free. Thank you so much. We are raising awareness for the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund and Bink. They do really great stuff with independent booksellers and are helping that community out a lot. You can support this podcast by giving some cash over at patreon.com slash sarahbenincasa. You can also support this podcast by going to matrushka.com slash code slash S-A-R-A. You'll get 20% off everything but masks plus free shipping. That's matrushka.com slash code slash S-A-R-A and patreon.com slash sarahbenincasa. Oh my goodness. What a strange time. What a special time. What a weird time. Thank you so much to all the Patreon supporters. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed. If you don't want to subscribe and you can't afford to give any money and you don't want to go shopping at matrushka.com slash code slash S-A-R-A, hey, you know what you can do? You can rate this podcast high, super high, high as the sky. And if you are so moved, you can write a little review. That would really help. Um, what else, man? I don't know. I'm recording this the day before Socially Distant Comic-Con, which is Thursday. It's the day before. And it's kind of hot in my apartment. My cat's being adorable. I just, um, got to be a part of my sister-in-law's surprise birthday parade that my brother Steve organized. Shout out to Steve. (laughs) I was, I zoomed, or I didn't zoom in. I was FaceTime on his computer. So he set me up um, on his laptop and like popped me next between the Pellegrino and the wine. And it was just really joyful and fun to get to see everybody. 
And now I have to catch up on some stuff for my day job. So these are busy times. I very much appreciate you being here. Let's take a deep breath together. Get as much in as you can so that your belly kind of fills up and hold it. And then slowly exhale through your mouth. for a moment and let's do one more breathe in hold and then let's breathe out for six one two three four five six <sighs> you know doing that a few times a day can help you reset so can dunking your face in super cold water turns out the internet told me that, so did my shrink. The internet and my shrink are correct. I hope you're taking good care of yourselves. I know some of you are feeling really fatigued right now. You are feeling exhausted. You are over this shit. You want to be out and free. Please, if you are permitted to go out and about, if you are able to, please wear a mask. Please employ social distancing. Please continue to take this seriously. I can tell you that last week, um, the amount of, of deaths in uh, Los Angeles County apparently doubled. I hope I have that right. I think I have that right. I don't mean to spread misinformation ever, so please forgive me if I if I do, but I was couldn't sleep and was up late reading some stuff from the Los Angeles Times, and, you know, it's, it's really quite amazing. And you know, we've been hit. New York has been hit. Italy's been hit. Spain's been hit. Other places have been hit, so we've had time to adjust. And we have the benefit of looking at other places that got hit before us. But you may be in a place that hasn't gotten hit yet. Um, you may be in a place like Florida or Georgia that is not observing appropriate rules around social distancing and taking good care. And that's not your fault. That's the fault of your terrible, terrible governors. But... Um, it sucks because it, it puts people in danger. So please take good care of yourselves. Please employ common sense. Please, if you need mental health resources, check out NAMI, NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness.org. You can also check out places like Talkspace for more cost-effective therapy. I am thinking of you. I am proud of you. You're getting through this. You're going to get through this. It's okay if you gained weight. It's okay if you lost weight. It's okay if you feel calm and happy. It's okay if you feel freaked out. Whatever you're experiencing is your version of normal right now. That's okay. We will get through this. I love you. I like you. I'm very proud of you. Go get some rest. Thank you for listening. <laughs>